0: Hey everyone and welcome back. For those of you that are not on the Facebook page, I just wanted to give you a brief announcement that the episodes I release are going to be a little different going forward. This podcast has reached enough people that I have the opportunity to include ads in the show. Including ads makes this podcast free for you and it helps offset the cost I spend in equipment and materials to keep the show going. So thank you to all of you for following and sharing the show so far and let's continue to keep that going. That's the only announcement I have for today, so let's get started. In June 2001, a 15-year-old girl from Cedar Rapids made plans to go to a friend's house to hang out and spend the night. She left her home with a family friend and was never seen or heard from again. With no clues and very few answers, the family has spent the last 20 years waiting for her to be found. This is the disappearance of Erin Pospisil. On Sunday, June 3rd, 2001, Erin Pospisa was getting ready for a night at her friend Britt's house. It was officially summer vacation, and Erin had already made a ton of plans to make sure she had a great, fun-filled summer with her friends and family. The girls had made plans for Erin to come over late in the evening to plan out Britt's birthday party for the upcoming weekend, watch movies, and the typical teenage stuff girls do. As it got later in the evening, Erin was getting ready to leave, but she needed a ride. It was about two and a half miles away from her house to Britt's, but she couldn't walk because it was already starting to get dark. Her dad, Jim, worked the third shift, so he was still sleeping. And Aaron's stepmom, Carolyn, who practically raised Aaron and was nothing less than a mom to her, was away babysitting for a friend. Aaron became upset that she couldn't find a ride, so Aaron's older brother's friend, Curtis, offered to give Aaron a lift to her friends. The seats in Curtis's truck had holes in them, which he covered in duct tape, and Aaron didn't want to ruin the clothes she was wearing, so she took a blanket to sit on and a bag of her belongings and left her home with Curtis around 8.45 p.m. that night. The following morning, Monday, June 4th, Carolyn realized that Aaron hadn't returned from the sleepover. Carolyn knew that Aaron had plans that day and she needed to be home, so she called Britt's house expecting one of the girls to pick up and to let Aaron know that she needed to get home, but no one answered. Carolyn had to get to work, so she left. She called home later that morning, expecting Aaron to be there, but when she called, Aaron still hadn't returned. Carolyn said at about noon, she called Britt's home once more, but yet again, there was no answer. When Carolyn got off work, she decided no more phone calls. It's been almost a full day, and she hadn't heard from her daughter, which was not like her, so she drove directly to Britt's house. When she got there, Britt was gone. Apparently, she had gone to work, so Carolyn left a note at the house for Aaron to call. Carolyn received a call from Britt later that night between 7 and 8 p.m. Carolyn had asked her where Aaron was, and when Britt answered her, she was stunned. Britt said Aaron never showed up to her house the previous night. Carolyn immediately started calling around to family and friends looking for Aaron, but everyone said the same thing, that they hadn't heard from her. Carolyn thought it was possible Aaron just needed to get away and went to Christine's house. Christine was Aaron's biological mom and at the time was also living in Cedar Rapids. Christine had spent many years dealing with drug abuse, which Aaron at times had been witness to, and Christine had spent some time in prison, but at the time of Aaron's disappearance, Christine had been released. Christine didn't have a phone, so Carolyn drove over there, but didn't get an answer and left Christine a note on her door to call her back. Time went by, and there was no word from Aaron or Christine. Carolyn scoured Aaron's address book, calling every single number to find her daughter. But as each person answered, they told her they hadn't seen Aaron. The following morning, the family went back to Christine's house once again, but still no answer. So they left another note on her door. Finally, Christine called back around noon that same day and said the one thing that no one wanted to hear. Aaron wasn't with her. Jim and Carolyn knew at this point it was time to get the police involved, so Carolyn filed a missing person report with the records department and was told that an officer would call to follow up on the report. The Pospicils waited all night, but didn't get a return call from the police department. So the next day, Carolyn had to go to work in the morning, but she left early at around noon and made her way to the Cedar Rapids Police Department. She requested to speak with an officer regarding the missing person report on her daughter. Carolyn was then told to go home, and an officer would be sent out to her home that evening. They waited all night, but still no officer showed up. So Carolyn then called the non-emergency number that night, and again was told that an officer would be sent out, and unfortunately yet again, no officer showed up that night. By Thursday, Carolyn had had enough, and she went to work in the morning, got off early about noon again, and went straight back to the police department. She told them this time that she was not leaving until she spoke with an officer. Carolyn said she waited for an officer past the shift change, which was sometime between 5 and 6 p.m. So she had been waiting to speak with an officer regarding her missing 15-year-old daughter for over five hours. Cedar Rapids Police Department again told Carolyn to go home and they would send an officer out, and finally this time they did. But they told Carolyn that Aaron was likely a runaway and that she would probably resurface soon and gave her some tips on what she could do in the meantime. This didn't make any sense to the Pospisil family. There was absolutely no reason that they could think of that would cause Erin to run away. According to friends and family, Erin had a ton of friends. She was a very outgoing and an upbeat young lady. Her presence was contagious. If you met her, you almost immediately liked her. She was on the school's dance team and even had aspirations to become a musician and actress when she got older. She didn't hold anything back from people, and if she was upset, her family knew why, and she didn't keep things bottled up. The family urged police to talk to the last person known to see Aaron that Sunday night. So that's what they did. Police located and spoke with Curtis Paget, and what he tells them leaves the family even more baffled. Curtis claimed after he and Aaron got into Curtis's truck and he made the six-minute drive to Britt's house, Aaron got out of his truck and walked up to Britt's front door and knocked, but no one was home. On her way back to his truck, she stopped when she saw a dark-colored, likely black, early 90s Chevy Cavalier pull up to the curb coming towards her from the wrong direction on a one-way street. Curtis noticed that the car's rear windows were tinted and there were multiple people in the car but as far as we know, there has never been any mention as to whether Curtis was able to provide details of the license plates on that car. Rather than going to Curtis's truck, Erin approached the car and had a brief conversation with whoever was inside. She then went back over to Curtis and told him, quote, these guys will give me a ride. She then walked back over to the Cavalier and got into the back seat and the car took off. When Aaron's parents found out about what Curtis said happened, they tried to figure out if they knew anyone or if Aaron was friends with anyone who drove a car similar to what Curtis described, but they didn't. Police released the information to the public, but not a single person came forward to police seeing the Cavalier or Curtis's truck in the area that night. Carolyn and Jim knew right then something was wrong and that Aaron had been taken. After the interview with Curtis and all of the details of Aaron's disappearance, Police told the Pospicils that because it appeared Erin had gotten into the unknown car willingly and there was no indication of foul play, her disappearance was officially classified as a runaway. So that means no emergency missing child alerts, no national media coverage, and limited resources from law enforcement. As far as we know, Erin had never been reported as a runaway before and had not exhibited any patterns of behavior that would make her family believe that she would actually run away. And even more unsettling is that Erin didn't take her belongings with her that night. According to an interview in the Vanish podcast on Erin's case, she had taken both a blanket and a bag with her when she got into Curtis's truck, but she left it all behind with him when she presumably got into the Cavalier. It's never mentioned how the family knew this for sure, or if Curtis had returned the items to the family, though, but it just doesn't add up to me. Why would Erin leave her bag with Curtis if she was getting a ride back home with someone else? Jim and Carolyn pleaded over and over with law enforcement to update Erin's case to an abduction, but because the reported information was that Erin seemed to know who was in the car and wasn't forced, local police told the family there was nothing more they could do other than keep an eye out for her. When the family realized they wouldn't get anywhere with law enforcement, they decided to contact media outlets themselves to report Aaron's disappearance. And although the family seemed to get some interest from the media about Aaron, it proved to be an uphill battle to get her story told. Cases of kidnapped and endangered missing children made the news. Runaways didn't. If they did this for the Pospicils, then they would have to do so for everyone, and they just couldn't. But Aaron's family didn't let that stop them, and they kept going. Friends and family made flyers and went door to door talking to everyone they could. The flyers the family distributed had a picture of Erin along with her description. Erin was last seen wearing a light colored tank top with tan short overalls. She was five foot three inches tall and about 125 pounds. She also had a visible scar above her left eye, brown hair with red highlights and brown eyes. The flyers became so common in town that they couldn't help but catch the attention Of a local news reporter and finally 20 days after aaron vanished the gazette published the first article about aaron's disappearance however the family felt the article was actually used as a way to bring awareness and provide statistics regarding runaways more so than sharing their daughter's story after 12 weeks of searching passing out flyers and going door to door carolyn felt it was time to expand their search beyond cedar rapids believing if aaron was still in town They would have found her by then, but no additional information came to light. Curtis Paget was a friend of Aaron's older brother, Eric, and had been around the family for many years. Before Aaron disappeared, the family never thought they couldn't trust him to be around their family or in their house. When Curtis was younger, he had a bit of a difficult past. He was known to be bullied pretty heavily growing up. According to the website iowacoldcases.org by Jody Ewing, a former classmate of Paget's named Adam came forward and said he attended middle school with Curtis back in the 90s. Adam said, quote, he used to get bullied a lot, but I think it was mostly because of the reaction other kids could get out of him. If they bullied or teased him enough, they would get him to make a scene and people would laugh about it. Paget was somewhat out of shape and didn't really have any friends. Adam went on to say that as Paget got older, things seemed to change and said, quote, he would absolutely explode with anger if teachers or other students upset him. That's the personality trait I remember mostly a quiet person, but would snap in an instant. According to public court records, Curtis didn't have a squeaky clean record either and had a few run-ins with law enforcement, including possession of a controlled substance, possession of drug paraphernalia, public intoxication, fifth degree theft and trespassing charges starting October of 2000, eight months before Aaron vanished and with new charges as recently as of May of 2020. According to Aaron's family, Curtis was later polygraphed by Cedar Rapids police on two occasions, and based on their knowledge, his first polygraph came back inconclusive, and he passed the second one. Polygraph tests are a very difficult and inaccurate way to determine guilt or innocence. There are literally hundreds of examples out there where people who are completely innocent of a crime have actually failed polygraph tests, and people who have been later found guilty of a crime when given a polygraph test passed. A polygraph measures stress response, so a typical person who has the ability to show empathy can flat out fail, yet someone labeled for an example as a sociopath who lacks empathy has no stress measurement on a polygraph, so when it comes to committing a crime like abduction or murder, they manage to pass. Another interesting detail that came forward was shortly after Aaron disappeared, Curtis had sold his truck. According to the family, police made no effort in trying to track down the truck, but when police approached Curtis and asked to search the vehicle, it was already gone. Many friends and family of Aaron's still to this day are very suspicious of Curtis and feel he is the only one who can give them the answers about what happened to her. According to the Vanish podcast, a friend of Aaron's named Amy, who refers to herself as more of a cousin, said she and her mom worked together at McDonald's with Curtis. According to Amy, he was a strange guy, and he had a weird obsession with Aaron. Curtis knew Amy and Aaron were very close and said when they would be at work together, he would always ask Amy what Aaron was doing or where she was at. Whenever Amy would tell him they had plans, he would always ask what they were doing. As the days, months, and years passed by, the Pospisil family held out hope that Aaron would just one day walk back in the door, hoping that police were right and Aaron had just taken off for a while. Sometime later, a sighting had come in from an ex-boyfriend of Aaron's mom, Christine. The man came forward to police and said that he had seen Aaron in the back seat of a car at a gas station in Cedar Rapids. He described the car as a black Chevy Cavalier. But by the time police arrived, the car was gone. And even though police attempted to investigate the sighting, it led them nowhere. Then about five years after Aaron's disappearance, Amy had come forward claiming she ran into someone in Marion who looked a lot like Aaron at a bar. Amy was there with her mom when she saw the girl walk in. Amy said she decided to strike up a conversation with the woman. Amy noticed the woman was a smoker, and so was she. So she asked her if she wanted to step outside for a cigarette. While the two were outside, Amy brought up the fact that she looked a lot like her missing friend, Aaron Pospisil. The woman told Amy that she gets that a lot, but her name wasn't Aaron. At that point, a man that the woman had shown up with came out and aggressively grabbed her by the arm and said, quote, we have to go now. Amy watched as the man took the woman and forced her into the car and sped away. To this day, Amy firmly believes that it is possible the woman she saw at the bar could have been Aaron. Almost six years after Aaron disappeared, Curtis's name would resurface again when his neighbor, Dennis Lee First, was found beaten and stabbed to death in his efficiency apartment in Cedar Rapids. At the time, Curtis lived on the floor below Dennis, and Curtis described himself as being a friendly acquaintance of Dennis, and even admitted to visiting with him about 36 hours before his body was found. Law enforcement issued three search warrants for Curtis's DNA and a search warrant of his apartment. Police collected his boots and other items from his apartment. However, the murder of Dennis first is still unsolved to this day. So was Curtis Padgett just a guy with bad luck and a victim of coincidence, or did he have something to do with both unsolved cases? One theory that police investigated early on was that Aaron's disappearance was somehow linked to gang activity between the Cedar Rapids and Chicago, Illinois areas. Law enforcement reported that after what they claimed was a thorough investigation, no leads were found and no new information was provided. It also needed to be considered that Aaron was taken and sold into some sort of sex trafficking ring, but there is no supporting evidence to back up that theory either. Another scenario, which is probably the most heavily favored by people familiar with the case and the family members, is that Curtis Padgett was somehow involved in Aaron's disappearance, and his statement to police about what happened that night after he left the Pospisil home with Aaron in his truck was completely fabricated. It was later confirmed that Britt was in fact gone at a store nearby getting snacks for the girls' sleepover when Aaron was to have shown up. So what happened after that? If Britt was gone when Aaron showed and Aaron returned to Curtis's truck to go back to her house, did he see this as an opportunity to do something to her? Personally, I think that it's very suspicious that he would allow his friend's little sister to get into an unknown vehicle to begin with, but it's even more odd that he would sell his truck immediately following her disappearance. And that detail is also the one thing that sticks out to the Pospisil family. There is one small detail in this entire scenario that stuck out to me, which I can't seem to get out of my head. And this detail leads me to my own theory. So for those of you who just want details of the case and what the family and police believe, you can certainly tune out if you want because this is just speculation on my part based on the events. The one thing I cannot wrap my head around is why Britt never called Aaron's house looking for her when she never showed up. Aaron's family said that her friends were very important to her. So I have a hard time believing that it was a common occurrence for Aaron to just make plans with friends and then stand them up. This leads me to believe that there could be another sequence of events that as far as I have read may not have been considered in this case. Is it possible that Curtis's statement to police was completely accurate and the events of that night were actually planned by Aaron, but she was met with foul play? The fact that Britt wasn't home when Aaron showed up, even though they had plans together, and by some strange coincidence, the Chevy Cavalier with unknown occupants shows up at the same time? Realistically, the time frame of Aaron showing up to Britt's, knocking on the door, and heading back to Curtis's truck took maybe a couple of minutes at most. It makes it seem possible that this car had planned to be there and were waiting for Aaron to show up. Even though Aaron's family and friends were unable to recognize the car described by Curtis, his statement of what Aaron said to him indicated there were multiple people in that car. So maybe Aaron knew one of the passengers and not the driver. Regardless of what theory you believe or don't believe, one thing is clear. Aaron's family and friends in their hearts don't believe that Aaron ran away. And after all this time and the lack of progress and any leads in the case, I think it's pretty clear that Aaron's family is right. Whatever events unfolded that night on June 3rd, 2001, something happened to Aaron. The family still believes to this day that the Cedar Rapids police could have done more. And I don't know who would disagree. I think it's completely absurd that it took three days for the family to get a police officer to show up to take the report at all. And that time Carolyn spent waiting on police was valuable time that they could have spent looking for Aaron. As of 2021, Aaron's missing status was changed from a runaway to endangered missing person presumed homicide. But the family never receives an explanation for the change. And as far as they are concerned, it's about 20 years too late. Today, Aaron would be 36 years old. Her parents and siblings have now gone almost 21 years not being able to spend birthdays, holidays, and family time with Erin, but even more heartbreaking is that they still have no idea where she is or what happened to her. Carolyn included a statement about three years after her disappearance on the website the family created, Erin Pospisilismissing.org, which states, quote, It has been nearly 1,000 days, but maybe she did run away. That sure seems better than the alternatives, but as a parent, my gut tells me that she didn't. If anyone listening has any information regarding the disappearance or whereabouts of Aaron Pospisil, they are asked to contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678 or 1-800-THE-LOST. Or they can contact Detective DeVore with the Cedar Rapids Police Department at 319-286-5350. You can also see an age-progressed photo of Aaron on the website Erin is missing.org. For those of you on the Facebook page, I will also include both a picture of Erin around the time she disappeared and the generated Age Progress photo. I will also include a picture of a Chevy Cavalier similar to what was described. Remember, everyone, sometimes all it takes is one lead to solve a case. So please make sure to share this episode with friends and family in hopes of getting justice for Erin and her family. If you want to hear interviews from the family themselves regarding Erin's disappearance, please check out the Vanish podcast by Wondery, episode titled "Aaron Pospisil. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Tune in next week for a new episode. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. You can find Secrets in the Cornfield, was Unsolved on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you are on Facebook, please make sure you search Secrets in the Cornfield Podcast and join the group. To help the families and provide a voice for the victims, please make sure to follow, rate the show, and share it with friends and family.